0: This is Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. I am Craig. This is Eric. Happy New Year's, guys. Happy New Year to everybody. We're kicking off Season 2 with a great episode. Later on, we're going to give you the results of our bowl challenge. Not happy for me, very happy for Eric. Yes. And uh, we're also going to talk about, a, to me, a surprising firing and hiring at the University of Texas. And maybe a little baseball. There's not a lot to talk about there. But before we get on to those things, we are... Kicking off 2021 with a wonderful guest, he's written a great book. Adam Gusso is professor of English and Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi, where he teaches courses in American and African American literature, the blues tradition, Southern autobiography, and other related areas. He's published five books on the blues, including his latest, Whose Blues? Facing Up to Race and the Future of Music. Gusso is also a professional harmonica player and teacher. He operates a popular YouTube channel, has released albums, both solo and with his blues duo, Satan and Adam. We're going to talk about who's blues and so much more. So please welcome Adam Gusso.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Craig.
0: It's great to have and you
1: air? Yes Yes.
0: Yeah. So just to start off with the book, give us a quick summary of it. What's the thesis of this book?
1: What's it about? Yeah, well, I should start by saying actually that it began. The original title, before the publisher said let's let's sex it up a little bit, the original title was Blues Talk, Making Sense of the the Music in a New Millennium, and it began life as a series of improvised lectures that I did in my car. Now, what you actually read is not those lectures, but they were sort of an armature that I used to sort of build what the book was about. And, And you know, I teach blues lit here at the University of Mississippi. And I had just finished teaching, going through the whole, the whole season, and really felt like going back through. I had a YouTube channel, I've had one for, since 2007, where I was teaching guys and gals around the world how to play blues harmonica but i realized I'd never shared some insights that I had about about the blues and blues literature per se. I was really talking in more more sort of mechanistic terms about how to make the sound, and I wanted to tell people where they came from. And that led me into a really interesting dead end, because I realized when I began to think about how people talk about the blues, one of the things that characterizes the contemporary conversation is a kind of racial polarization that could be kind of condensed into two memes or, or slogans. One of them is blues is black music, with a sort of exclamation point, with a with the emphasis on the word black, with a sense that on the one hand, we're grounding it in sort of re- a real place the music came from. On the other hand, that there's we're exerting some kind of pushback against non-black folks who play the music. And that, it seemed to me that there was that was problematic for several reasons, one of which is that blues, of course, was black music for a long time. But if you actually talk about who in the contemporary world in 2020 plays it, listens to it, is the audience for it is teaching it far more non-black folks around the world. It's a global music, And I wanted to sort of introduce that complexity of the conversation while at the same time ministering to what I'd call a kind of straight-ahead blues, uh, sort of white blues aficionado culture, folks who sort of know all the records and go to the clubs and, and are sort of part of the contemporary scene but may be resistant to race talk, may be resistant to thinking about the origins. So I, I wanted to kind of create a conversation between those two well let's that's in called. there one that's, of the other yeah. side
0: of that was uh, no black no white just blues i think from the book no
1: black no white just the blues right, right which just is sort blues. of a t-shirt meme and i right. and i thought let's have a conversation between those two and let's take them seriously both of them try to understand them and then sort of deconstruct them at the same time and let's teach let's teach folks a little bit more about the cultural origins of the blues precisely because we're a long way from those origins right in the year 2020 exactly. So yeah, exactly yeah
0: exactly so a couple of ideas running through that strain there one of them is how does this relate to a, a kind of a 2020 term that you sometimes hear associated with rap and hip hop which is cultural appropriation and then the other,
1: yeah. the other Yeah the other issue I was
0: going to ask about the idea that a lot of times songwriters will say when they write a song and release a song, it kind of becomes the listeners, and you have to respect what the listeners interpret out of that. Mm-hmm. And that goes back yeah. to what you mentioned. Blues has become worldwide. You can go almost anywhere in the world and hear blues records and blues music being played. And mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to rein that back in.
1: It's kind of hard. The genie's out of the bottle. Right. But one way, one thing that I do is I try to say, look, in the year 2020, and I, I don't actually talk much about cultural appropriation. There are, There were some... Interestingly enough, some 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 early white respondents who, when they simply heard the title of the book, got kind of offended and thought that I was going to say white people, you know, shouldn't play the music. But nothing could be further from the truth. I think that's silly. Actually, doesn't mean that white players are are good or that all black players are good. But it, it certainly there's I don't have anything against white people playing it. I've been playing it for forty five years. I've had seven or eight African-American men who took lessons from me in blues harmonica. So I think we need to start thinking about the paradoxes and, and try to imagine what they were getting from that encounter. Um, but I think what we really need to do is back up, back up for a second say, it's not just about white Americans and black Americans. It's about... Indigenous people in Canada, for example. I did a, a, a Zoom a Zoom thing with a, a, the Toronto Blues Society. It's about Luna Lee, who's a Korean YouTuber who plays, you know, Mississippi blues on her guay, Guayagum uh, sort of traditional Korean zither. It's about a blues culture that's moved around the world, where there are there are people in South America who, there's a Colombian guy who learned from, you know, by, by listening to the greatest Argentinian blues band, Memphis La Lucera. Most Americans have not heard of Memphis La Blucera. Not all this stuff's in the book, but that's the kind of conversation I wanted to have, which is what I call an anti-fundamentalist conversation. Fundamentalism is blues is this and only this. And the problem is that the blues itself suggests that that's not the right way to think about blues. Kalamu Yassalam, a a black New Orleanian who was originally Val Ferdinand, he was a black arts movement guy back in the 60s, used to say blues isn't about good versus evil. It's about good and evil being eaten off the same plate. Blues is about paradox. It's about you can't tell a book by looking at the cover. So one of the paradoxes I'm interested in, here, here's, here's a more direct example. When I think about my own blues playing over the years, I was a Harlem Street musician playing with Sterling, Mr. Satan, McGee between 1986 and 91. We went on the road. We moved from an all-black audience to a mostly white audience, from a Harlem Street audience to a, an American club and festival audience. We went over to Europe. We went to Finland for bringing that music around the world. I'm now in a trio of all things with Sterling McGee's nephew which is it's a long story but what I would say is that one of the things we need to think about if we're talking about these things is to try to understand that blues in many occasions these days is made in interracial units and combinations of mixtures of people to, to, at, at best at best blues culture is a, is a sort of melting pot culture but of course there are inequities that that black blues people are have been more forward about talking about and i I try to think about think those through like blues festivals there are some places where you end up with all white blues festivals and this is off some black Chicago players. And I talk about Billy Branch and, and, uh, and Sugar Blue and, and others who've gone in, in this sort of what i call the post-Trayvon Martin period, the last eight years or so. It's sort of a part of where this conversation has, what, part of what it's grounded in, I think, is that sort of reassessment.
2: The blues is, uh, people just say that term loosely, in my opinion, because it's so foundational into other genres of music, even in the modern day especially if you study musical notes and and forms and scales and, and rhythms it's uh, it's it's everywhere it's it's all over it's it, music it's uh, it's in country it's in you know classic oh, yeah. rock it's yeah. just everywhere and, and and that's why I don't think it's not even a, a thing it's just so I think people inherently hear it now and they're like hey I'm familiar with that I know what that is and mm. but I just can't put my finger on it that, mm-hmm. that
1: sound. Well, and it's become part of commercial culture. That's the other thing. I remember there was exactly. a famous commercial with B.B. King or John Lee Hooker saying, this could be the end of blues as we know it. You know, he, <laughs> um, uh-huh. It was, you know, it's been used in a lot of commercial stuff. So I think that sound, you know, I was a busker in Europe years ago. And one of the things that fascinated me was that when I was there, I was an American playing American music. That's how I was seen. Right. I wasn't seen as a white American. I was seen as an American. And the sound that I propagated was seen as a quintessentially American sounding, and, and and it was fascinating for me. This is actually revealing to hear, let's say, a French guy singing. Uh, Got my mojo working, but it just don't work on you. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I wonder is that what is that what it's like for black folks when they hear me sing? Like I'm hearing this guy, and I'm thinking, you're trying hard. I the song works. I can I can drink a beer to it, and, but it, you know, close but no cigar. Of course, that's that's not fair. But what I would say is that there's this sort of infinite regression. There's blues in China, came late to China, but there's a guy named Big John Ling, who's a bass player and who talks about blues and how, you know, blues is blues. You know it when you hear it, you know, and a Chinese blues man. So yeah, it it's goes going back everywhere. To
0: the, yeah, the genie's out of the bottle yeah. and once it's such a such a. A music that's that really connects yeah. to the human spirit. It's hard to keep it or, to yourself. Or almost. the genre's out of the bottle. Yeah, the yep. genre's out of the bottle. There you go. The music is out of the
1: bottle. The music is out of the, the, bottle. Out of the
0: bottle. I really enjoy yeah. this part of the book that explained the revival of Sun House in the 60s during the early festival movement that brought him out of, I guess, some sort of retirement. Right. Uh, one of my favorite bluesmen, Mississippi John Hurt, had a similar story, sure. was very popular in the 20s as a young man, and then uh, sort of retired that type of life and then was found by new yorkers who came down and, and found sure. him yeah, yeah in avalon yeah. mississippi where he was farming and brought him into the club scene for a second career so to speak i was really interested in mm-hmm. that how how did those artists respond to that revival i mean was that something that they kind of went along with or i'm, I'm kind of curious to know how they felt about being exposed to audiences that in their youth could not have imagined would be listening to their music with such attention.
1: That's one of the interesting things, you know, is to think about, and I, I, to some extent what I try to do in the book is say, you know, we're all living in the aftermath of a range of histories, from ranging from sort of slavery and Jim Crow to the 60s and what happened to blues during the 60s. You know, if we were to go back to, let's say, the year 1958, blues was black, it, it, was, it was a music with an almost entirely black audience. But it was an audience that was fading. Yeah. Rock and roll was supplanting blues, and so blues artists, people like Muddy Waters, were feeling they were feeling the loss to some extent. But there was still a black audience. BB King in '64 has a black audience, and and so and by by 1968, you know, it's a huge mass white audience, and and so the the guys you mentioned, Sunhouse and Mississippi John Hurt and Skip James. I'm so I'm so glad, I'm so glad, covered by Cream, of course, right. in, in their first album. Those guys, it's, a, it's interesting. There's a, an amazing biography of Skip James called I'd Rather Be the Devil by S- the late Stephen Call. Skip James was very proud of, of his music and, and, and sort of resentful in some ways and looked down on other artists. So there were a lot of, many of these artists knew each other, but they were also, and they were, Puzzled by their new white audiences. There's a couple of descriptions of how, you know, Muddy Waters would show up and or or one or one or two of these artists would show up someplace and a basically a naked hipp, hippie chick would be given to, to him as sort of his guide. Like, hello, flower flower girl. And they didn't know what to make of this. A white woman in, in the place where they'd come from in Mississippi in the early sixties, a man like that couldn't you know, there were that you'd get lynched, you'd get beaten. There were right strict proscriptions, and suddenly they're in this, this sort of in, incipient or nascent sort of hippie movement. There's a sort of folk revival first, and then then it blows wide open after the British Blues Revival brings, brings stuff over, and the Butterfield Blues Band goes out. I think they were puzzled. I think they were pleased. But there's there's a lot of, there's some paradoxes there, too. Um, Dick Waterman, who was one of the people who discovered, along with Nick Pearls, who came down to Mississippi. And here's the curiosity. It was, it was Freedom Summer, the same summer that 800 to 1,000 Mostly white, mostly northern kids came down to sort of bust Jim Crow wide open and register black folks. Yeah, sixty four, I believe, in right? Mississippi was the summer that that you know that that they found these superannuated blues men and brought them north and put them on the folk festival circuit. I think it was a problematic period, but I think they had a they certainly had an appreciative audience. The audiences loved what they were doing. Absolutely, uh, and I think yeah. that they were all touched by that. No.
0: I, I, I think so.
2: It's it's gone on, in my opinion, especially in popular music. Growing up in high school in the mid to late 90s, all of me and my white friends listening to nothing but Tupac and Biggie. And it, <laughs> I don't think that we, we were their target demographic when they were writing right. and recording these gangster rap albums. And it's just like Lil Wayne said this past year, no, I'm not racist. Have you looked at my audience, they're all white. It's just like, mm. it, it's not your target demographic. I, I would be surprised, even back in the 60s too, to be on tour and be like, Okay, wait a second, the audience is white, (laughs) what's going on here, you know, and maybe there's just something underlying that these these audience can connect with, It's, it's truth, it's like you believe it when you hear it, and I think that's what's so important about the blues it's, it's, it's
1: incredibly creative it's it's you know hip i'm not a hip-hop fan particularly except except if i tell you that i once wrote a long article on cowboy troy i think you guys will say oh god <laughs> yes country rap yeah I, I was it just i was i was fascinated by uh, i played chicken with the train and wrote you know did a lot of research to try to understand why it that song had grabbed me and yeah. found some interesting things but but I, what I did discover, Cowboy Troy talked about how he invented this hiccups thing. He said, "Well, I, you know, I, I was doing this sort of rap thing in between sets in a, a country bar, and people seemed to like it. Right. So, you know, I, I sensed that there was a possibility a kind of crossover thing. So, it doesn't surprise me that that there is. It's very creative music. It speaks to today. Um, it doesn't really speak to me. I just, but, but I understand that it does speak to it. speaks to uh, right, right. younger folk.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I think." Before the British invasion in the States, when the Stones and the Beatles and some of these other bands in England had not broken out yet, Mm -hmm. I think they they have said in later interviews that part of the reason they played the music, they played the American music, Chuck Berry and the blues music, like uh, like Little Walter,
2: Robert Johnson,
0: was to to expose that music and to bring attention to that music that was not... Of course, they didn't have a real understanding of the United States. I guess they thought they were you know, wildly popular, Mm -hmm. but I think that was part of what drove white audiences to the blues of uh, of that time was because they were hearing it in in British and American bands like Cream. But at the same time that was happening, it's not as if the audience grew, it's that it shifted and the blues Mm -hmm. fell out of favor with black audiences. It didn't, was that a coincidence or was that something that had to go the way that it went? That well, time. it's
1: so interesting. Here, you know, the, here, there's a there's one more paradox that I try to uh, touch on, which is in, in the part of the Deep South. I, I'm a, a, a New York guy, so downstate New York, and lived in the city for many years. But, but uh, I'm living in North Mississippi, and in this part of the country, there is is and has always been a, a, a black audience for what they call blues, which really is has a sort of another name of sort of soul blues. But, you know, it would include guys like Johnny Taylor and 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 uh, Denise LaSalle, both of whom I think I heard on a jazz station in from Newark when I was when I was learning about the blues. But people like who would, whose names would not be familiar to most white audiences, although Bobby Rush actually is a good example of a crossover artist, somebody who actually crossed over from the soul blues. So there's always been a black audience that they disappeared, especially up north. B.B. King says his audience just it went from white to black, from black to white. But he never completely lost the older black folks. He just didn't have any youth audience because they all went to soul. Right, Motown. Blues was yeah. seen, right? Yeah, Motown. Blues was seen as sort of a, a backward sound, a southern sound. Even though BB King was really a modernist, and I, that fascinates me, he was always trying for a sort of new sound. He wasn't. He wasn't trying to do the old sound. But
0: I, didn't, um, I didn't really get a sense yeah. of whether the emergence of white listeners to those artists was a natural result of the black fan base moving on to a different sound to me it didn't necessarily have to happen that way but maybe in the 60s it did it's a
1: good question i i, I mean and of course i have a chapter in my book that's called the blues revival and the black arts movement at Work." and i was going to say i don't know if that's the there's there's a title there was a former title that may have had like i think that's it the white people i think that's yeah, it that's it And so I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, at the very moment that you have the loss of a younger black audience to the blues, and this incredible swelling of the white audience, a white youth audience, to the point, you know, driven by sort of Janis Joplin and Paul Butterfield and Tom Jones, who was considered a blues artist on traffic. um, Steve Winwood. Steve
0: Winwood. Incredible blues
1: singer. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time you have that, there's a third stream, which is a sort of black intelligentsia that was arguing about whether the blues was invalid. Ron Karenga, the guy who created Kwanzaa, said the blues is invalid. You know, it's not, it's not part of the Marxist political struggle. Or, and I write about a guy named Larry Neal, who would be very well known to people who are conversant with black poetry and the sort of the 60s, the black arts movement, but not well known at all among blues aficionados. But Larry Neal was an important thinker about these things, and he made these impassioned, very sort of wide ranging uh, defenses of the blues. Uh, and kind of, the you know, the blues may not be hip, and yet it's the music that got us over, is the way he would put it, the music that helped people survive. It was So there was that sort of interesting tension, and, and then it sort of seemed to, it sort of went away. I mean, what happened to blues by the early 70s? It's interesting. Bonnie Raitt is there, and then Johnny Winter comes with Part Again, he gets uh, Muddy Waters, and so there's... Blue sort of wanders yeah. the 70s, but you still have this.
0: You still have the second generation, Robert Cray. Yes, and now you, Robert Cray. Yeah, so you have this second Robert generation. Robert Cray's a fascinating of, figure. Yeah, yeah, that comes along during this time. The same time as really Bonnie Raitt and some of the some of the other artists of the time. Uh, one of the things that was probably the most surprising thing that I read in your book was mm-hmm. the fact that Robert Johnson. You say was not particularly well-known or famous in his own time. Because today, people look at Robert Johnson as the standard or the iconic figure of Mm -hmm. the Delta Blues, partly because British artists like Eric Clapton and Keith Richards were such fans of his music. He only recorded about 30 songs. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them have been covered time and time again by by rock bands. You say he was not particularly well-known, and I'm really curious to know why his music...
1: Yeah, kind of so the, this, go ahead. its not an original point with me. I mean, and part of what my book tries to do, just I, I'll be upfront about it, which is I'm trying to almost—I'm trying to do a survey, among other things, of contemporary blues scholarship. And so this is one of the things that has now become an accepted claim, uh, but it was really pr- uh, propounded by uh, Elijah Wald in a book called "Escaping the Delta: Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues." And so I sort of—I I sort of uh, rehearse the kind of arguments that I that I have with him, but he's absolutely right on that point, which is that in order to understand Johnson and his popularity, you have to understand how he was received. He was relatively well-known... He was never a popular recording artist in his own time. It was people like uh, Leroy Carr. There was a sort of handful of people. Of course, blues women were much more popular than Robert Johnson. So the Bessie Smiths and Ma Rainey's of the world, right. much more popular as recording artists back then. Johnson had a, a sort of popularity in, in, in Mississippi so that his name would be known and his stuff would get some play. But, you know he was not that well-known. Well, he became well-known really with the release of King of the Delta Blues Singers, or that was the beginning of it in in the early 60s or 1960, 61. Columbia put out kind of a, a bunch of his greatest hits, and it was a selection which heightened the sort of devil soul sale stuff and convinced people who didn't know him, there was very little known about him in a biographical way, that somehow he was devil haunted. They heard me and the Devil Blues. And I, by the way, I wrote about this at length in my last book, which is called Beyond the Crossroads, The Devil and the Blues Tradition. Our, our understanding of Robert Johnson is really partly because he's become a kind of anchor for blues rock. That because of the Stones and Clapton and what they said about him, Right? we think he was an important figure. He was much less important stylistically for the blues than... And people like Leroy Carr, hmm. and uh, and other singers. Yeah, yeah. I just
0: uh, was not aware of that uh, that line of argument. Yeah. By the way, in case I mean, I, your your book is heavily footnoted and and uh, and well sourced. I mean, there's a there's a goldmine yeah. mm-hmm. of information for anybody that reads this book that wants to do further reading on the subject. Not only your own, but across the the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Your book title asks about the future of music, and we'll kind of end here because. I looked at Alligator Records and some of the new releases. You have young artists like Gary Clark Jr. and Selwyn Birchwood and some others that are putting out really good blues music. Even today, third-generation, perhaps, uh, artists I've I've, I've listened to. There's probably many more on Alligator and other records. Uh, Mm. What does the future hold for the blues as we uh, move deeper into the 21st century? Where do you think the art form is going?
1: Such an interesting, it's such an interesting question. I do think. Let me let me give you one group that I think offers a way to think about it, and that's Southern Avenue. I was not aware of them before this project, uh, and then I came across them. A guy named Ori Naftali. He won the international blues competition, that, or he won the the local challenge in Tel Aviv, Israel. He brought his band to Memphis in 2013, I think, and, and did okay. And ended up sort of firing his band and, and hooking up with two African-American, young African-American women from Memphis, a drummer and a singer, and a couple of other musicians, and forming a band called Southern Avenue. It's a really exciting music. Their debut album, they've had a, a second album that's got a Grammy nomination. It's, you know, so you've got, if you will, a, a, a white Israeli kid and two young black women. It's a sort of, it's that it's the black-white coalition. It's the Memphis, a home of the blues, and Tel Aviv, and yet he's on guitar, kind of driving it. It, It's a really interesting fusion, so it has blues in it, but that's not all it is. Um, It also has a sort of R&B sound of Beyoncé. My wife said, well, that's, you know, she heard it, and she goes, well, that's that's a Beyoncé sound. So that's one place blues goes, I think, is that we're getting musicians who overseas who are coming to America, I'm talking about, Japanese musicians, I write about them. Uh, In Chicago, for example. There's a player, actually, who's been part of Billy Branch's band. He's been in Chicago for 30 years. Uh, Ario is his name. Um, Arioshi. Piano player. So, blues has has gone overseas and it's come back home to America. The International Blues Challenge as a whole, I think, is part of what the future of the blues is, which is a kind of homecoming, which brings people from all over the world who've won their local blues society challenges. But it also brings people from across America and and many older African-American performers who may have been, not had, you know, powerful recording careers, but are really good and and well-known in their local communities in Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis and places like that. They come and you get this kind of mingling and this the, annual reconstitution of what what makes for really good blues i love i love just hanging out on beale street for that event that, and that's, I would that's interesting you have that you, know,
0: you have that whole thing again with sun house and mississippi john hurt and a new generation of older yeah. artists getting rediscovered or discovered for the first time going from regional to well, national to international
1: yes yes same the same kind of thing and you also when you talk about that you have that that generational component in that different way, which is to say there's a, actually an interesting book called, I think, Children of the Blues um, that was published about 10 years ago. But the the, uh, the idea that Shamika Copeland, for example, the daughter of the late Johnny Copeland, this has been going on for probably 20 years now, but that, you know, Muddy Waters, every one of his kids, every Morgan Fields right. descended from him is is now yeah. a blues recording artist of some kind. So there does seem to be a way in which those that lineage is the really the right word. The, line- the blues lineage is... That's true. From the elders, the black elders are important. They remain important.
0: Yeah, yeah I saw Copeland has a new record out this this past year in the fall, I think, on Alligator.
1: I saw, and I, yeah, I actually, there's another example, by the way. She, she for a long time, her kind of manager and co-songwriters, a white advertising executive named John Hahn from New York, who I've known for a while, he's been around forever. And, and, and so there's another, again, the paradoxes, right? It's black right. music, it's American yeah. music, it's global music, and I try to get at all those things in my book.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book. We recommend it. We both enjoyed reading it, and uh, Adam, tell us where we Thanks. can go to find your books and your music and where you are on social media for people that are listening yeah. that want to so, track you down.
1: So I have a website called Modern Blues Harmonica that's been around for 13 years. I would say that my current recording project, I would actually encourage people to go and look for it. It, it has an unusual name. It's Sir Rod, like well, like Sir Rod in England. Sir Rod and the Blues Doctors, it's a, it's a trio. We've got a new, uh, my, my Blues Doctors duo, which has been around for eight years, has a, has a new lead singer who is a fantastic dancer and singer. And we've got an album called Come Together. So it's easy to go online and just put in Come Together Blues Doctors, and you'll find uh, our debut recording. And that's, go to Amazon, I would say, to look for Who's Blues. Just put my name in Amazon and you'll find... You'll find the books that are there.
0: Okay. Any Twitter or anything like that?
1: I do have a Twitter. Yeah, I, I, my, my sort of liberal centrist politics are, are in evidence there. Uh, okay. Sort of <laughs> squatting in the middle of the whole thing. And I've got a Facebook page, a couple of different Facebook pages, so people, again, can look for look for
0: things there. All right. Well, look him up. Adam Gusso has been our guest, a professor, a musician. The book is Who's Blues?, Facing Up to Race and the Future of Music, highly recommended by Hooks and Runs. Adam, thank you for being with us. Thank you for being our guest to kick off
2: 2021. Yes, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Greg.
0: We're back, chapter two. But it was just Colorado.
2: What is your just Colorado, huh? You have no respect for Pac-12, do you? I have no respect for Pac-12. That's so cool to get a harmonica bumper music just done <laughs> just like right that. there. Yeah, you just said. Was, like, hey. I'm like, man. I'm like, okay, we need to like do this a little more often. Yeah. <laughs> Other people like. Hey, by the way, if you don't, you know... We should have had Atlanta James bring her fiddle. I know, I know. See, now's where my... I know, so... Now that we cool. know. Yeah, now we now
0: know. Now we know. This is, the, this is the mission for season two, is <laughs> yes. to get our music musician <laughs> guests to give us a little bit of bumper music. Right. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, the book, Who's Blues? Facing Up to Race in the Future of Music. Wonderful book and, a, and really gracious interview. We appreciate Adam for doing that. So it was just Colorado. No, I do not have a lot of respect. I think it's probably never happened before that a team has gone into a bowl game, defeated a Power Five one-loss team like Colorado was. It, it, it wasn't by just Colorado. Thirty-two points. This wasn't. A, and then they
2: fired the coach. It wasn't a definitive game. <laughs> they they had that lined up. I mean, you don't fire your coach following a bowl victory and have somebody already lined up. To fill that vacancy right away if there hasn't been a lot of preemptive work done.
0: Oh, I'm not doubting any of that. What I'm saying is it's never happened before. They won by 32 points against Colorado. They were 5-1 and one in the Pac-12 this year. I know the Pac-12 was down, down. but um, hey, The bar
2: is set high at the University the of Texas, Craig. High.
0: The bar is set high at the University of Texas. Tom Herman. Fired on the heels of the Texas loss to Colorado in the Alamo Bowl, the final score of that game was 55 to 23. Optically, a great game for Texas, a springboard into 2021. But now they're going to pay Herman 15 million dollars, and reportedly his staff is owed another 9 million for yeah. a total of 24. I think
2: nine or 10, right, something like that.
0: I've read uh, 24 total. Herman 15. So that's a lot of money on the heels of this pandemic to be paying Tom Herman. I understand that they've laid off. A lot of people, I don't know the number. For some reason, I'm thinking 300, but that seems really high in the athletic department at UT, and they also have other vacancies they're not filling, but they've got $24 million to buy out. A guy that just routed a Pac 12 team by 32 in the bowl. And before we get to his replacement, my immediate question is. What on earth was going on at Texas, were they, were they firing? So you, you're thinking that they have already decided win, lose, or draw against Colorado, he's Yeah, they gone. had to,
2: of course. You don't feel – you don't make – yeah, they had to. Those are big decisions that are made. They, I mean, Steve Sarkeesian was announced that afternoon. Yeah, he was. So, I he mean, was. so therefore he's already been interviewed. They've already done something to, you know, hopefully they just pull names out of a hat and say, hey, we're going to, you know, this Sarkeesian guy, we're just going to, you know, I'm assuming – Some kind of work was done to make this decision.
0: Yeah, maybe they felt like they had to wait to Alabama play Notre Dame, but they didn't have to wait for Alabama to play the championship game. So Uh, whatever, that's been done. Steve Sarkeesian is the new coach. He's 46. He was previously coach at Washington and then USC. He does not have what I would call the kind of pedigree that you normally see for a coach going to a school like the University of Texas. He was 34 and 29 at Washington, but in his defense, that program had gone 0 and 12 in 2008. So yeah. he kind of took over a train wreck, turned it around somewhat. They were 24 and 21 in conference, never finished higher than third in the Pac 12 North. And then USC comes calling for him. He goes south mm-hmm. where he uh, coaches the Trojans for a year and a half. He goes twelve and six, but he gets derailed. They let him go in midseason after I think six games or so. It was in mid-October when he missed a practice following the Trojan's seventeen to twelve loss to Washington. In Seattle. After that, multiple reports started hitting the press about Sarkeesian's problem going back to his days with the Huskies. At that point, his stock was about as low as it can get. In 2016, Nick Saban hired him as an offensive analyst. That was an unpaid position. Then when Lane Kiffin left for Florida Atlantic at the end of that year, Sarkeesian coached the championship game, yeah, which they lost to Clemson. And then Sarkeesian spent two years at Atlanta he, as the offensive coordinator for the Falcons. Now, they didn't do particularly well, and they fired him after two seasons. The year before he arrived, the Falcons scored 33.8 points per game. They fell to 22.1 his first year on the job, 25 the next year on the job, and they fired him. He goes back to Alabama. He wins the Brawls Award this year for college football's top assistant. Of course, Alabama's had nothing but success. They were 11-2 and last year.
2: Well, do you think they would? You have Alabama <laughs> athletes, Alabama, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you, I mean.
0: Well, Alabama's situation has been a revolving door with coordinators for 10 years. You get a coordinator's job at Alabama, and next thing you know, you're coaching anywhere from Florida Atlantic to University of Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the only, the only constant at, at Alabama is Alabama money, Alabama fandom, and Nick Saban. I uh, I was
2: in a steady stream of five stars. I watched the uh, the bowl game against Colorado, and I was like thoroughly impressed with the, the the young talent that the quarterbacks they put in, the running back, and the recruits they're getting. I'm like, okay, I mean, Herman, you've had some time, but now I feel like you're. I don't know. I, have I haven't no idea. talked. I haven't talked to a
0: single Texas fan or alum that is disappointed or upset with the decision. They question the timing. And they question the hire, but not letting Herman go. I felt yeah. everyone feels like, and a lot of people who have closer ties to the program than I ever will with my alma mater, A and say Herman was a difficult guy.
2: Yeah, that's, that's the rumor.
0: And uh, he was difficult. And of course, the thing about being difficult is it works great if you win.
2: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I bet Nick Saban's. Yeah. I bet Nick Saban's very difficult. Yeah.
0: So if you're winning, difficult is okay. But if you're losing to Iowa State, difficult gets you fired. Yeah. And he lost to Kansas and all those other things that happened. The thing that I want to know is, what you what do you think about this? Herman, you know, everyone remembers Herman. He kind of made his name at Ohio State. But before he went to Ohio State, he was a graduate assistant at Texas, a coach at Sam Houston, a coach at Texas State, a coach at Rice, position coach. He goes to Ohio State for a couple of years, has tremendous success there under Urban Meyer. Then he comes to the University of Houston – has great success at the University of Houston. He went to the University of Texas with 12 years' experience recruiting in Texas. What does Sarkisian have no, that I have no is idea. better than Herman? He certainly doesn't have a record of managing major conference Division One programs.
2: I think if you ask any Longhorn fan, what are your hopes? They're going to say, "We hope Steve Sarkisian has uh, learned something under Nick Saban that is invaluable that he didn't know previously." That's the only thing you can hope for.
0: You hope for. He's got some years on him. Hopefully, whatever his alcohol issues were at Washington, USC, you hope you hope at least on that angle he's successful. That the bright lights of Austin and the pressure of being at one of the signature programs in college football doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't cause him any kind of trouble. Really shocking news to me because I felt like I thought I'm not really a Texas fan, but I don't really I didn't really understand that. I felt like. That if you're going to fire Herman, you do it when you still have the. Full. It was
2: as confusing to me as the Cleveland Indians' name change in the news. It, it, it's, the I, I will do some research, and it'll all make sense, you know, in a month. But right now, I'm just like, what? Like, huh? Well, it kind of reminds
0: me a little bit of although it wasn't a firing when Anum basketball coach Mark Turgeon left late in the cycle to go to Maryland. Yeah. And I forgot how many years ago that was. And then AM hired Billy Kennedy. He was not up to the job. And AM stuck with him for a long time. And really, the basketball program suffered under Kennedy. People liked him. He was a nice enough guy. But he just didn't didn't continue what had started with Gillespie and then Turgeon. But, you know, everyone said, well, that was the best they could do late in the cycle. Mm-hmm. And I always would say, well, wait a minute. If you just wait a few months, you have a whole other cycle where you have a lot of good coaches that are getting hired. Those good coaches are available now. You don't have to, like, you know, fish at the bottom of the barrel, I guess, just because you're late in the cycle. Yeah.
2: Very, very odd.
0: Anyway, Texas has a new coach. I don't even know if there's any openings left. I think all the openings have been filled. Auburn is filled. South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Illinois. I think they're all filled. I think we're ready yeah. to go for twenty-one. All we need now is fans in the there stands.
2: That's right. The bowl
0: challenge. Okay, I have to eat some crow. I lost again. We picked twelve games back on episode, I think forty-two, and or forty-one. I forgot to look, but it's on the. It's there. It's in the title of the show. Yeah, It's in the title. So uh, we picked twelve games. We picked against the opening line, and we picked against the opening over and under. Two of those bowl games were canceled. The Texas Bowl uh, between Arkansas and TCU was canceled, and the Music City Bowl in Nashville between Missouri and Iowa was canceled. So we ended up with 10 games. Eric went 11 and 9. I went 9 and 11.
2: And so I lost again to Eric. I think the lesson learned in this whole thing is when opening lines are released, especially in something volatile as college football, especially in something as volatile as a bowl game during a pandemic, it's best to wait until you get all the news before the game if you're going to. You know, make your choice. The Florida game is the – number one thing. I mean, wow. That was – Because we both right out of the gate were picking Florida, but
0: they had some issues.
2: I I selected (laughs) Oklahoma.
0: Oh, you did? Yes. Mm -hmm.
2: And uh, you selected Florida, and I think that was the big kicker right there because the news gets released later on that week that, hey, our top four wide receivers aren't playing. (laughs) And they were the number one FBS passing offense in the nation – and you just remove it. I mean, so. Was there a bowl game that was really a surprise or a shock to you? I was actually shocked at Iowa State just just drubbing Oregon. Um, I was shocked at – I mean, Texas scoring 55 points, Oklahoma scoring. I mean, they – you know, that I was shocked that Clemson lost. I mean, I was what? shocked at the amount of points Ohio State scored. I was surprised that, that Clemson was,
0: was really not terribly competitive.
2: They really weren't. It's very odd. That because, was the thing that threw me. Because I was reading our notes, and it was like uh, Ohio State dealing with COVID-19 issues and Clemson in a route. And I was like, yeah, I, I can At the know. time, that seemed reasonable. Again, that
0: goes back to your point about opening lines in college football, yeah. especially during a pandemic. Because it seemed like that could go either way for Ohio State. They didn't play particularly well against Northwestern, although I think Northwestern is better than we were giving them credit for. They manhandled Clemson. I was really not expecting that. Oh, I would yeah. Have, I would have been more shocked if Notre Dame had beaten Alabama, but I was totally shocked that just the same that Clemson was – not it just didn't seem particularly competitive to me. Yeah. So, college football, one more game left, Alabama versus Ohio State. Nobody is giving Ohio State a chance, just like they gave them very little chance against Clemson. Do you think they have a chance?
2: Uh, who knows? I, I, I doubt it. I really do.
0: Alabama. This is this. This may be as good as any Alabama team in the Saban era. I mean, they just seem defensively I, to be yeah, elite.
2: I, I think this is they're by far their best team. Which is it's an odd saying that because they have the number one recruiting class in the country. Uh, I think wide receiver Smith for Alabama. Uh, I think he might. I think he's going to win the Heisman, and I think he'll have a, a very good NFL career. I just, man, it's just plug and play with those guys. It, it's it's a dynasty for sure. Well, one of the things that's happening in college football with the
0: playoff system that we have, and it would be the same, I think, either way because you could add any number of teams you want to add, you're still going to wind up with these elite teams playing in the end. These elite teams are getting more and more, a higher and higher percentage of the top recruits, and you're seeing the same teams over and over again in the playoffs. Exactly right, yeah. And it's the inverse of the NFL, where at least in the NFL, if you win the Super Bowl, you get the last pick. Yeah, the Cleveland Browns made the
2: playoffs this year for the first time in 18 years. Yeah, but... So, I mean, and that's because the parity is... The parity,
0: you know. So, in college football, the more you make the playoffs, the more five stars you get. They say they
2: don't even have a salary cap on recruits, you know right. what I mean? They <laughs> exactly. can just... Well, they have a, a yeah. certain number they can, but there's they, if they want to get all five stars, hey... Yeah, they got sure. them. Got because them. Because they can just come in. So, I think
0: the playoff... I think the playoff system is bad for college football. I don't know if we've talked about that. We've talked about it off the podcast. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast. I think we ought to do an episode about how it used to be before everyone decided we had to have a definitive national champion. It was so much more fun. Bowl games were so much more fun. Bowl games really meant a lot. They meant a lot then. They don't mean as much now. I wish we would go back to that. That's a topic for another day. But uh, in any event... I'm 0-2 in challenges against Eric, and I'm going to think really hard on the next one. We'll do a war challenge again. Maybe I'll do better. But um,
2: anyway, I mean, I mean, if if, if the uh, – yeah, we can do a uh, baseball one again, <laughs> hopefully a full season. We'll do a full season war challenge, hopefully. Yeah. So, in any event,
0: listen, we're kicking off 2021. We appreciate you listening to Hooks and Runs, a podcast about baseball, music, and culture. I'm Craig. This is Eric. We will be back next week. Our guest is Scott Russell. He's written a biography about one of my all time favorite baseball players, Bill Lee, the Spaceman. It's called The Spaceman Chronicles. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to
2: that too. We'll see. Does does, does he play any instruments? I don't know, but we're (laughs) going to ask in advance.
0: Absolutely.